Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we examined the testimony of another equestrian enthusiast who also offered the defendant legal services in his dispute with the alleged victims in this case. On today's installment, we examine the testimonies of several more equestrian associates of the defendant, as well as an insurance adjuster who handled a flooding damage claim made by the defendant. That's all coming up, right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just before noon on April 5, 2022, Judge Stephen Taylor invites the defense to call one last witness before the lunch break. The defense requests that Joseph Williams take the stand. Mr. Williams has a receding hairline with dark gray hair on top of his head that fades to white on the sides. He also sports a white goatee and wears a gray suit, a powder blue dress shirt, and a yellow and blue striped tie. Again, Chris Dininger handles the direct examination and begins his questioning by asking the witness about his employment background and other biographical information. What is your profession currently? I am um, a barefoot horse trimmer and I train horses, young horses and behavioral issues. And you operate that business in New Jersey? Yes, sir. What town? I travel. Okay. Um, and do you also live in New Jersey? Yes, sir. Great. Have you always worked in a horse-related field? No, sir. What have you spent your time doing over your career? I um, retired uh, detective sergeant from Township of Berkeley Heights. So a police officer? Yes, sir. Detective? Sergeant. Detective sergeant. How many years did you serve in law enforcement? 25 years. Uh, what type of work did you do in law enforcement as a detective sergeant? We handled everything from uh, a bad check to, you know, every kind of case possibly. Burglaries, uh, car thefts, a little bit of everything. Drugs? Yes, sir. Contraband? Yes, sir. And do you recall what year it was that you retired from the police force? Sure do. February 1st of uh, 19. February 1st, 2019. Now, Mr. Williams, did you ever perform services as a farrier? I was a farrier, trained as a farrier, but I took my business all barefoot. Okay. You know Michael Barris? Yes, sir. And in what capacity do you know him? He was a client. I, I uh, was client of. He was a client of mine for approximately five to six months. Okay. And when was that client relationship with him? Approximately February of nineteen to August, July or August of uh, nineteen. Was Michael aware of your service in law enforcement? Yes, he was. Did there come a time in late July of twenty nineteen that Michael called you? Yes, sir. And I don't want you to talk about the words that were spoken in the phone conversation, 
But what was your understanding as to why he was calling? Your personal understanding as opposed to what was spoken? My understanding was he called me in reference to having a problem with a client who also resided on the property and about the situation between him, her, and her boyfriend. Did Michael ask you for any advice with respect to the situation? Yes, he did. Based upon your communications with Michael in that phone conversation, did you have any concerns about what was happening at the farm? I don't know if I had concerns. I gave my input on what I would do. What input did you give him? I advised him to go down to the municipal court and file a harassment complaint. I told him to go down to the, uh, they're going to have him fill out a probable cause statement, give him the facts and see if there's enough justification to, you know, file a charge. And uh, I told him to, re you know, retain an attorney, not for that, but as far as him advising me, he had problems with evicting her from the property. Did you communicate to him anything about the risk of someone putting something in the vehicle? Yes, and in reference to um, the harassment complaint, I also told them, you know, if you're harassing her, she's going to file, do the same thing. Uh, in reference to um, the vehicle, I advised him after he advised me that he thought she was on some sort of narcotic. I told him to keep his vehicles locked in, in the event that, you know, something could possibly potentially be placed inside the vehicle to kind of set him up. No further questions. Judge Taylor invites Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn to question Mr. Williams. Cross-examination. Am I being disrespectful if I call you Mr. now that you're retired? You can call me whatever you want, sir. <laughs> Just don't call me late for dinner. Mr. Williams, so so when Michael Barrison contacted you, so your advice was that he should go to the municipal court and file a harassment complaint? Yes, sir. You also told him, generally walked him through the process he could do to follow that? Yes, sir. But you also told him that it was possible that someone who was using drugs may plant drugs in his car? Potentially being due to the fact that he was having uh, problems with this person and he, you know, he advised me that he thought, or I don't recall exactly the conversation, but she potentially could be using drugs. So I just told him to keep his vehicles locked. But you would agree with me that someone who's addicted to drugs Does well. doesn't just go give up their drugs and stick it in someone else's car to plant it on them and get them in trouble. I'm not a, I've never done a drug in my life. I'm not a drug user, but uh, it would make sense. And fair to say Berkeley Heights, the, the drug problem there is not at epic proportions the way it is in other places. We had our fair share, but yes. Did you have cases where people who were addicted to drugs were planting drugs in other people's cars? I've had cases where drugs were put placed in someone's car. No further questions, Judge. After Joseph Williams steps down from the stand, Judge Taylor calls for the lunch break, and so we'll take a break of our own. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. After the lunch break, the defense calls Brian Gibson to the stand. Mr. Gibson is a heavyset man with a gray crew cut and dark eyes. He wears a gray suit, a white dress shirt, and a yellow tie with blue stripes. Once again, Chris Dininger handles the direct examination for the defense. Good afternoon, Mr. Gibson. 
Yes, sir. Do you live and work in New Jersey? Yes, I do. And what profession do you engage? Public insurance adjusting. What is the field of public insurance adjusting? Sure. Public adjusting is where the homeowner or business owner has an insurance policy for property that they own. They would hire me to represent them if they had a claim where an insurance company has either a direct employee of the insurance company as an insurance adjuster, or they use independent insurance adjusters to negotiate claims on their behalf. Is the field of insurance adjuster a nationwide pursuit? Uh, in some states, do not have public adjusters. You, you, they just don't exist. But in New Jersey, they do. They do, yes. And do you have any particular education background that's relevant to it? Well, uh, in New Jersey, you have to have continuing education um, through an online courses. Right. Prior to being a public adjuster, I was an electronic engineer, and then I switched fields 11 years after that. So my schooling is more towards the electronic and, and experience more towards public adjusting. Um, so how many years have you been engaged in the business of being a public insurance adjuster? This is my 30th year. 30th year? Yes. And you operate your own company? Yes. Gibson and Associates? Yes. With respect to how your office operates, mm -hmm. I'd like to try, if we can, to direct your attention to what your office operated like in January of 2019. At that time frame, so the first six months of that year, okay? Mm -hmm. and, uh, Go ahead. To answer your question, um, my office is located in Tottawa, New Jersey. Uh -huh. We have a small office, which we have a secretary who happens to be my wife. Uh -huh and my boss, if you want to look at it that way. I have a business partner, and my son um, would be also an adjuster um, with my firm. And I think in 2019, that, that was the extent of our firm. Okay. Do you have a sophisticated phone switchboard system in the office? We have approximately three lines coming into the office. Two of the lines are mostly made for outgoing calls, not to tie up our office lines for new business coming in. We found probably about 10 years ago, and it benefits our office if we have that line forwarded to my cell phone so we didn't miss any incoming calls or wait for an answering service to get back to us because we found answering services kind of didn't give us the correct names or correct numbers or addresses. They, they weren't accurate. So we all the phones at that time were forwarded to my cell phone. May I ask, with respect to the practice of being an insurance adjuster, are sometimes you called upon in an emergent basis? Yes. But our licenses only allow us to solicit or, or to obtain new business between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. for the first 24 hours of an incident. But if somebody called us and it was an emergency, as long as we get a call in, we're allowed to go out and, and take care of that situation. And there is a license issue to you? But we're licensed by the State Department of Banking and Insurance. Is that something as to which you have to submit an application? You have to submit an application, a form of insurance, um, continuing education, that your credits were up to date. So is a, a person or an operation vetted before they're given that license? Yes. And you've been through that vetting process? Yes. And did you maintain that license in January 2019? Oh, yes. Have you maintained it continuously throughout your operation yes. of your business? Yes. Let's go to January of 2019. Did you come into contact uh, with Michael Barrison. Yes. And what was it that brought you into contact with him? I believe I received a phone call from Mr. Barrison that he had a, a claim in a, a farmhouse he owned. Uh, it was a pipe um, freeze up. So it was a pipe that burst um, due to the thawing of the broken pipe. Was that pipe uh, that burst in a, in a farmhouse, did you say? Yes. And was that uh, the farm where Michael also had his dressage facility? 
Yes. I, I understand that the Shah's facility was further back than the farmhouse. I, I never actually ventured back that way. Okay. But the farmhouse is where I, my business took place. Okay. And so you get the call from Michael. You're advised of some incident. incident. Mm -hmm. What was the next step you took with respect to this contact? So either the same day or the following day, I would go down and, and meet um, Mr. Barrison and uh, look at what is involved with his claim, see what caused the damages, and find out whose insurance company he was with, and, and make sure that he had coverage for the claim that he had. Do you have a specific recollection as to whether Mr. Barrison was actually in the state of New Jersey when this claim arose, as opposed to being in the state of Florida? I could tell you that I know the claim took place on January 28th, or at least it was reported on January 28th, and I've been, I was retained on, I believe, January 31st. So I, I can't tell you if he was there before we met. I, I, I don't know that. Can I show you a document? Sure. Dininger hands Gibson several pages of paper and asks him to review them. You recognize the document? Yes. What is it? This is my firm's retainer agreement. And does it indicate that you're being uh, retained into, in connection with any specific event? Pipe break. Uh, where? Uh, 411 West Mill Road in Long Valley, New Jersey. And does this uh, document set forth the terms of your agreement yes. with respect to acting as, acting as an insurance adjuster? Yes. And do you get compensated? Yes. And what does it say your compensation is in connection with this engagement? 7% of the settlement. Okay. Does this reflect your signature? Yes. And do you see another signature? Yes. Whose is that? I, I know it's Mike Barazon, but I, I can't read it because it's, it's a signature. But okay. I know that to be because that's uh, who retained me. And does this the confirm? Uh, does this confirm the date when it was signed? January thirty first. Okay. Mike, two thousand nineteen. Okay. So, do you recall where it was that you met Michael to have him sign this? In his kitchen, the first floor kitchen. At the property. At the property. So was there an active water leak at the time you were there? No, um, the insurance company brought in a company called Code Blue Restoration, uh -huh. and what they did is set up uh, fans and dehumidifiers to try to dry up the structure. So it, it wasn't actively leaking at the time that I was there, but I was able to see the pipe that broke, where it was located, and the damage that it caused. So the efforts of that company, would it be fair to call them a remediation company? Yes. And why is it important, if you know, mm -hmm. to have a remediation company come in? The first part of your insurance policy tells you that you need to protect your property from further damage. So by protecting your property from further damage, you want to bring in a, a remediation company to dry up the structure to prevent mold or any additional damage that may be caused if you don't address the wet material. Do they sometimes uh, cut into the walls when they're attempting yes. to dry it out? Yes. Do they remove heat rod? Yes. Do they remove insulation? Yes. And if they left that in place and didn't remediate, uh, what sort of additional damage could happen to the property? Well, the floors would buckle more than they have. Um, you develop a mold situation in the walls. I do believe when I was at the property and Code Blue was there, um, we did some testing and additional sheetrock or drywall had to be removed because it was wet and it wasn't uh, found at the time when Code Blue was first involved. Do you recall? I'm sorry, were you done? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Do you recall when you were there whether or not the ceilings have been stripped of their sheet rocket insulation? Some were, some were not. Some I instructed them to move further with the, the removal of the drywall. And that was to protect the property? Yes. And it, does that also in some manner uh, hopefully reduce the claim? Yes. In connection with this claim, did you ever meet with Lauren Canarac? No. Did you ever speak with Lauren Canarac? No. To your knowledge, did anyone else from your office ever meet or speak with Lauren Canarac? 
No. If you were to give a good faith estimate right. as to the number of claims that you've been involved with right. over the years, can you ballpark it? Would it be dozens, hundreds, um, thousands? What would it be? It, it, approximately 200, 250 claims a year. Um, sometimes if there's storms or, or, or floods that come through, that number jumps dramatically. So during Superstorm Sandy, for example, what had, happened to your office? We had to stop taking claims. We we did so much business that I had to instruct my, my firm to stop uh, bringing in new business. It wasn't fair to the client or the potential client, and it would just drive us crazy. We, so we had to stop. We, we only took so many. In your past experience, is a damage to a house from a burst pipe something that's unusual? How common is it in your experience? In the winter months between January and March, very common. For a, free, a frozen pipe, for a pipe break, it could be very common. Just for the pipe to break by itself or, or a pinhole or something rubbing against a pipe that causes. But in this case, it was a frozen pipe that when that pipe thawed, that's when the water caused all the damages. Was there anything unusual about this claim based upon your experience of 30 years in the insurance adjusting business. No, it was common it, it, for this type of claim. With this line of questioning, Dininger presumably seeks to rebut the inferences made during the prosecution case that the defendant's insurance claim for the flooding caused by a burst water pipe was fraudulent. As Dininger begins to ask the witness whether the defendant adequately heated the house where the pipe burst, Judge Taylor interrupts the defense counsel and calls him to the bench. It would appear that the judge questioned the relevance and necessity of continuing this line of questioning as he promptly guided the witness to step down and ask the defense to call their next witness. Dininger calls Philip Dutton to the stand. Dutton has tousled brown hair. Reading glasses hang around his neck over a gray zip-up sweatshirt under which he wears a powder blue button-down shirt. Dininger again begins by asking Mr. Dutton about his place of residence and his professional background. Good afternoon, Mr. Dutton. Hi. You live in Pennsylvania? That's correct. What city? Uh, the postal address is West, West Grove. How long have you lived there? About 30 years. Uh, what do you do for a living? Um, what's called a three-day event rider or equestrian. So um, that's what I do full-time. So I uh, compete throughout the world and teach and train horses. So you said a three-day event rider. That's what, am I using the term correctly? Correct, yes. Uh, could you give the jury a description as to what that means? Um, a three-day event is like a triathlon for horses. So there's three sports involved in the one in our sport and you can only use the same horse for all three sports and um, the score is tallied over the three sports. Uh, so the three sports are dressage and then cross country and show jumping. How long have you been engaged in the pursuit of that sport? Uh, well, I've ridden all my life. I mean, you start off in pony club and that kind of thing. Um, but when I moved to this country from Australia, I took it up full time. How long ago was that? That was in 1990, I believe. You do it competitively? Correct. Have you ever gone to the Olympics? I've been to seven Olympics. Seven? Yes. What country were you representing in the seven Olympics you attended? Uh, I represented Australia in uh, Atlanta, Sydney, and Athens, and then I changed my nationality to the U.S. and represented uh, U.S. in China, and then London, and then Rio, and just recently in Tokyo. Have you medaled? Yes, I was fortunate to be a team gold medalist for Australia twice and an individual 
medal for America in uh, Rio de Janeiro. What year was Rio? 2016? 2016, yes. Do you know Michael Barrasso? Yes, I do. How did you come into contact with him? Uh, Michael is a great dressage rider and teacher, and um, so I sought him out to get help for the, one of the disciplines, which is dressage, leading out, or around the London Olympics time and for a year or two after that. And if you could, for the jury's sake, when were the London Olympics? Uh, that was 2012. So is it fair to say, as of now, you've known Michael for maybe 10 years? That's correct. And you worked with him as a trainer? Well, he was my coach for dressage, yes. So I was a student in that situation. Okay, so when you say coach, he's coaching you as a rider as opposed to something else? He's coaching me as a rider, but also the horse and uh, giving his professional wisdom on how to improve the horse and get them to go better and train better and uh, muscle better and um, just overall improve uh, the performance. Are those things impactful on your performance in competition? Absolutely, yes. And that's why, you know, competition's tough, so you're just trying to get a little bit better all the time. So you seek out help and advice um, all the time. Did Michael do that for you? Yeah, Michael's a great coach. So you know him as a coach. Mm -hmm. Did he uh, fit any other categories in your life, such as friend, mentor, anything else? Yeah, I'd call him a friend and, uh, you know, I... We didn't hang out that much. Um, certainly on trips like going overseas, you usually only got one horse and that doesn't take long. So you hang out there and talk and uh, get to know one another. So I've got to know him pretty well. Even when he wasn't coaching, you know, I'd still um, see him and around some of the competitions. Even when he wasn't coaching me, I could still see him at some of the competitions and talk and that kind of stuff. Have you ever seen him ride a horse? Yes. With any frequency, have you seen him do that? Uh, yeah, I'd say I saw him ride. He's ridden some of mine to get a feel for what they were like. In your experience, have you ever seen Michael do anything inappropriate with a horse? No, never. Um, you know, at this level, the horses, are, unless they're treated well, they're not going to go well. So, you, you know, it's, it's in no one's interest to be uh, mean or uh, bad to a horse or do anything wrong to them. So have you ever seen a mystery a horse? Never. Have you ever seen him uh, become violent toward another person? No, I have not. Have you, through your interaction with him, developed a belief as to his truthfulness? Uh, all of my interactions, uh, Michael was extremely honest and somebody that I could trust, yes. Did you find him to be honorable or dishonorable in business? Uh, I think he's very honorable. I mean, I didn't have much of a business dealing. It was just more uh, paying. I paid him for my lessons and uh, that kind of thing. But it was it was very honest and straightforward and um, trustworthy. Your Honor, I have no further questions. Judge Taylor invites Prosecutor Shellhorn to question the witness. Cross-examination. Yes, Judge. Uh, Mr. Dunn, good afternoon. Hi. I'm sorry to ask you this question, uh, but did you have a fire on one of your farms in May of 2011? Yes. And uh, a number of horses perished in that fire? That's correct. Um, six to be exact. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that a, a barn fire can be very dangerous for the horses? Absolutely. Uh, and you weren't at Mr. Barrison's farm on August 7th, 2019? No. Thank you, sir. No further questions, Judge. Chris Deininger calls one final witness for the day, Michael McGrain. Mr. McGrain has light brown hair and a receding hairline. He sports dark glasses and wears a gray zip-up sweatshirt over a black polo shirt and a black t-shirt. Again, Chris Deininger begins with questions about McGrain's background. 
Mr. McRain, where do you reside? I live in Westminster, Maryland. Do you have any involvement in uh, the horse industry? Yes, I, uh, I train and work and teach. Do you have a particular area of training that you engage in for horses? Uh, dressage, mainly. Dressage, okay. Do you know Michael Barrison? Yes. How did you come to know him? Uh, I met him a few years back and uh, went and ended up working for him as a young horse rider. Do you recall what year it was that you met him? I think 2018. We're just asking for your best recollection. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you uh, work at Mr. Barrison's uh, farm in Florida? Yes. Did you work at Mr. Barrison's farm in Long Valley, New Jersey? Yes. Okay. Were you working for Mr. Barrison in 2019? Yes. Were you present on his farm commencing in June of 2019? Yes. And that's the Long Valley farm? Yeah. Did you have living accommodations there? I did. I lived in a, like an RV trailer. Comfortable arrangement? Yeah, I liked it. Uh, were there any uh, particular geographic formations in the nature in the area where your trailer was? You mean like the landscape or yeah. something? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of a little elevated um, above the barn, up like a little slurp, a uh, couple trees around me, some big rocks, okay, stuff like that. Okay. So your job working for Michael was to train horses? Yeah, I did the, the young horses, you know, okay. rode mostly young horses. And did you have any other work that you performed for him while you were working for him? Yeah, if I wasn't riding horses, I'd do um, some construction work for a little side money or something like that. What experience do you have in construction? I worked with my dad for about eight or ten years doing uh, home remodeling and kind of high-end work and stuff like that. Did any of the work that you were involved with involve tiling? Yes. What level of experience do you have in tiling? After I spent a few years with my dad, I ended up kind of being like the main tile guy. I did all the laying and stuff and, you know, all the laying stuff out and everything like that. So how many years do you have of experience working with tile? Eight or ten. Eight or ten. Yeah. And let me ask, it might sound like a naive question, but is that something that takes some skill to do properly? Yeah, I've seen some pretty bad jobs from people. Okay. And so as a person with uh, seven or eight years of experience, did you have enough experience to do a good job as opposed to a problematic one? I think so, yeah. During 2019, do you recall what month it was that you arrived at the farm in Long Valley? In 2019? Yes. Do you mean when I started working there or when I got back from Florida? When you got back from Florida would be the way I would put it. March or April maybe, I think April probably. Okay. Were you involved in any of the work being done to the farmhouse in 2019? Yeah. Okay. Um, were you involved at all in the tile work in the basement of that farmhouse? Yeah, I laid the tile in there. You did? Yes. Did you work with anyone in laying that tile? I worked with Rob. Rob who? Rob Goodwin. Okay. And to your knowledge, which of you, Mr. Goodwin, or you had greater experience in tile work? I think in tile work I did. Did uh, Which of you took the lead role on that job? I pretty much did, yeah. And is there a percentage that you'd split it up as to how much percentage you were responsible for as opposed to Mr. Goodwin? I, I was responsible for probably 70-80% of it. When you were involved with working with Mr. Goodwin, um, did he show up on time for work? Mm, rarely. Judge, I'm going to object at this point. It's a little far afield, counsel. Did the atmosphere at the farm change in July of 2019? Yeah. Did you observe changes in the atmosphere, experience them yourself? 
Uh, yeah. What did you observe and experience that were changes in the atmosphere at the farm at that time? Things got real tense. It was not as much fun working there anymore. Seems like everybody was walking on eggshells, you know, just, you know, really nervous, stuff like that. Were you walking on eggshells? I started locking my doors. Yeah, I was, I was nervous. Was that an unusual thing for you to do? Yeah. From your perspective, was there a cause for that change? Yeah. What was it? Objection. What's the basis for the objection? Relevance, judge, speculation, calls for a lay opinion. Judge Taylor calls another sidebar conference and afterwards sustains the objection. Chris Deininger presses on with his questioning of Mr. McGrain. You mentioned a rock near the trailer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you have any particular use for a rock near the trailer in your personal life at the farm? I don't know why I was there, but I like to sit out there and smoke a cigarette. Uh, did there come a time in late July, early August, when you were sitting out there one evening with Justin Harden? Yeah. Did anything unusual happen while you and Justin were sitting out on the rock? Uh, yes. What happened? We kind of, you could see like a figure kind of going around in front of windows and stuff, kind of sneaking around dressed all in black. And then uh, at one point I heard some rustling in the brush behind me and I was kind of like, what's that, you know, and said something to Justin and all of a sudden Lauren Canterac comes out of the brush and no shoes on, dressed all in black with like a black veil kind of thing, I guess to cover her face or something. Was it light or dark out when this was happening? It was dark. That same evening, do you know whether Michael was out trying to walk the yard, so to speak? He was on the front porch of the barn, I think. What was Lauren wearing specifically? I guess like a, it was just all black. I'm not sure. It might have been like a little dress or spandex on and stuff, no shoes. You know, I couldn't tell you exactly what she was wearing. Based on the circumstances you observed that night, did that clothing impact the visibility of Lauren Kenrack? Yeah. What did it do to the visibility of Lauren Kenrack? Well, it was all black. The only time that you could see her is either when she was standing right in front of me or when she was sneaking by a window that had light shining through and you see a little shadow figure go sh shooting by the, the light. When you talk about windows with light shining through, what building were those windows in? The garage. Was she wearing shoes? No. Were you on the farm when the incident occurred on August 7th, 2019? Yes. Okay. In the days preceding that, uh, did you interact at all with Michael? Uh, every single day. Okay. And did you notice any changes in Michael in those days preceding the incident? Yeah, I mean, like, usually he's pretty fun to be around telling jokes, likes, you know, he's always involved with riding the horses or coaching us and stuff. We weren't getting any coach. He wasn't coaching us as much anymore. He wasn't riding the horses that he was supposed to. He just seemed like depressed and out of it and stuff. Did there come a time when uh, Michael did anything unusual toward you that you felt was out of character? He broke down to me a couple of times. At one point he gave me a hug, which I thought was weird because we're not, we've never actually really hugged each other. <laughs> So was that the first and only time he's hugged you? Yeah. Were you ever, to your knowledge, uh, mentioned in social media posted by Lauren Cataract? Yeah. Did you see postings that you interpreted to be about Action. you? Can counsel. Judge Taylor calls for another sidebar and presumably sustains the prosecution's objection as Dininger follows the sidebar by announcing that he has no further questions. Prosecutor Shellhorn then rises for cross-examination. Uh, Mr. McGrain, you were at the farm on August 7, 2019? Yes. 
Uh, you didn't see what happened or what transpired by the farmhouse. Mr. McGrain shakes his head and indicates the answer is no. You were interviewed that night at approximately 7.12. Uh, I was interviewed that night. I'm not sure what time. And was that at the, that was when you were still at the property? Yeah. There were two detectives there? Yeah. And they asked you a series of questions about what you knew about what had been going on at the property recently. Uh-huh. They asked you questions about Michael Barrison. Yeah. They asked you questions about Warren Canerac. Yeah, I believe so. And you didn't say anything to them the day of the shooting about this story about Lauren Kenrick jumping out of the bushes wearing all black, did you? Uh, I'm not sure if I did or not. Proud, yeah, I don't know. After conferring with his co-counsel, Prosecutor Shalhorn realizes that he does not have a transcript of the interview with the witness to refresh his recollection. And Judge Taylor asks to see the attorneys at sidebar. It would seem that Judge Taylor denied the prosecution's request to show the witness any video of his conversation with police. And Shellhorn perseveres with his questioning. Mr. McGrain, were you shown a copy of that statement before you came into courtroom today? No. Mr. Boenkis or Mr. Dininger never showed you a copy of what you said to refresh your memory before you testified? No. And again, Judge, for the record, it's a video Alright, I get it. He wasn't shown a video. He is your witness. And you don't recall whether or not you ever said that during your interview the day that Lauren Kenrick got shot? Uh, it was two and a half years ago. I can't, I can't recall what I was asked or said. Do you remember when the police officers asked you questions about 911 calls in the week or so leading up to the shooting? Not specifically. I don't remember. Do you remember that there were 911 calls yes. in the week leading to the shooting? Yeah. And uh, were you at the property when some of those calls were made? Yes. Were you at the property when some of the occasions when the police came? Yes. And did you think that it was overreacting to call, excuse me, to call the police? I hadn't, I, I didn't know the severity of the situation at times, so I wasn't sure. But on August 7th, when you met with the police after the shooting and gave them a statement, you told them that it was probably a little overreacting by calling the police. I may have said that. I'm not sure if I, how I said it. Do you also recall telling the police that nobody knew where the disagreement had come from? Yeah, I actually, I don't even know how the whole thing got started in the first place. No further questions, Judge. Although it is still only mid-afternoon, Judge Taylor announces to the jury that the defense has no more witnesses for the day and excuses them early. And so we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we examine the testimonies of another equestrian enthusiast, as well as those of the defense expert witnesses who will offer evidence supporting their claim that the defendant is not guilty by reason of insanity. If you'd like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 
You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.